So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. How quickly time has flown by. Today it dawned on me that my daughter is four months old today. So much has happened in so few days in only four months. It's been a really, really great journey. I've been savoring all the snuggles. She actually started rolling. I don't know if I shared that. She started rolling a day or two after we got home from the NICU. So I think she wasn't even I don't know, 10 or 11 days yet. And she rolled for the first time. But now she is a quick and speedy roller. And it's so funny because my two-year-old has learned patty cake over the last few months. And so she has this thing where she try. I hear her saying, roll it. And I know from the other room that she's trying to roll the baby back and forth. (laughs) I have to go and intervene. It's really funny when you hear her say it, but then you realize those are kind of warnings that she's about to roll over the baby if she hasn't already. And she'll roll it back and forth like she's playing with Play-Doh or something. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. A lot to talk about. We have some questions that have come in about tubal ligation and kind of finding a future and a hope after having experienced an abortion as well. Uh, we'll dive into that a little later on the show. Really interesting. If you haven't been following some of the latest on the abortion topic, uh, there's a lot of dust that has not settled as Roe versus Wade was overturned a year ago, but conversation regarding abortion still continues. There was a Senate hearing on an abortion debate basically having to do with women's health care and what's happening currently in women's health care. I want to share with you a little bit about that Senate Judiciary Committee hearing because it was really amazing to hear some of the pro-life doctors who spoke and completely destroyed these pro-abortion arguments that are outright lies. And if they aren't, women are not receiving adequate health care because the pro-abortion movement is speaking lies to doctors. And some doctors, for some reason, might believe it. I'll explain that to you a little bit later here on Trending. Joining me today on Trending are the founders of Wallet Win, your Catholic finance coaches. We're going to talk about why you should stop living paycheck to paycheck and how to stop. If you have a financial question today, we're happy to take it. Number's 1-888-914-9149. Jonathan and Amanda Texera are here with me. And I'm thinking about this, Jonathan and Amanda, and I saw recently CNBC actually did their own survey showing that nearly six out of 10 Americans are living paycheck to paycheck today. There's a lot of concern with the recession, inflation. I think people have a lot of pressure and fear on their shoulders. And it's time, I think, for a lot of people who want to tighten up finances. They've been living paycheck to paycheck. And even if it's just about reducing stress, I was thinking about this earlier. I was reading one financial planner was mentioning that a lot of people are in survival mode right now, which means fight or flight hormones are kicking in, cortisol levels are going up, and money is a problem for a lot of people with regard to stress. Yet this isn't what God intended for us to experience with finances. He intended for us to be good stewards of our finances, to not be living in a very stressful state paycheck to paycheck. So I want to talk to you guys about why we should stop living paycheck to paycheck and couple concrete things to do to change that, to stop living that way today. So welcome back to Trending. Thank you very much, Timurie. It's very uh, happy to be here. Yeah, we're glad to be back. Let's dive in. So why should someone stop living paycheck to paycheck? I think a lot of people don't want to, but what would be your convincing argument for why we shouldn't? (laughs) 
Sure. I, I think, yeah, like you're saying, a lot of people find themselves in this boat, maybe uh, more now than in the past. And you said, you know, 60% of American adults find themselves living paycheck to paycheck. And even 40% of high income earners mm -hmm. find themselves there too. So it's right. not necessarily how much money you're making. It's how you're handling with it. So mm -hmm. when you are paycheck to paycheck, right, that cortisol is pumping, you are stressed out, you are there because, right, one job loss or other financial shock, one emergency you can't afford, you're one of those events away from digging yourself maybe even deeper into debt, finding financial ruin, you know, fi falling behind on the mortgage, other payments. And so it can, it sets you up and it's like the near occasion of financial ruin. Mm-hmm. And just think about that stress. I mean, hanging over so many people of, you know, one job loss or one payroll mix up or you're you're on you're living on the edge constantly. But another reason that it can cause so much stress in in, you know, our bodies and in, in the back of our minds is that it just brings less flexibility and and no wiggle room. So, you know, when there is a sale that comes up and you want to buy in bulk, you know, maybe a half cow or there's a, a, a sale on, on travel. Well, you actually don't have the wiggle room to take advantage of it. Or maybe there's a special mission that comes to your parish and you want to go ahead and make an extra gift, but you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're not going to get paid till Friday. So you just miss out. You don't have the flexibility or the wiggle room to be able to say yes to, to what God's putting right there in front of you. And that can be just a really frustrating spot, making you feel like that you just are stuck all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's uh, frustrating for people, but a lot of people have been in that state. They're living paycheck to paycheck. Maybe, you know, they're affording their expenses, but they had some debt that they accrued, a credit card debt, maybe a hospital bill, whatever that might be. And so they're not quite there, but they're, you know, really struggling just a little bit to get that paid off. And that's creating additional stress. There's so many reasons why people find themselves living paycheck to paycheck, and then they stay there stuck and stuck for years. Mm -hmm. So what are two concrete things that someone can start implementing now to stop living paycheck to paycheck? Yeah, there's a couple different strategies that we teach people to do. And one of them is introducing what we call piggy banking into your budgeting. So every month we encourage people to make a budget. And when you're going to go ahead and fill out those categories, you create piggy banks for larger bills. Um, so take, for example, car insurance. Maybe it's $1,200 a year. Let's keep the math easy. So then in your budget, every single month, under the car insurance piggy bank, you're just going to put $100 there. Um, and this is going to help you go ahead and smooth out your budgeting, save for those bigger expenses that are coming. And as time goes on, you're going to be less dependent on that paycheck coming. You'll have the money ready when those things come. And piggy banking isn't just for those larger bills that are coming down the pike. You can actually use a piggy bank to get out of the paycheck to paycheck cycle. So, right, you would have one budget category or one, you know, we call it a piggy bank in there that you're just, that's your financial goal right now. So you're going to be putting money into that category. You're not touching it. And over months, over a few months, it's going to build up and it's going to build up to the point where then you can take the money that's sitting there waiting to be used and use it for your next budget. So then you will eventually be at this point where when you sit down to plan how you're going to spend your money in the next month, 
it's money you actually have in your account. It's not what I what I think I'm going to get paid on the first, mm-hmm. and what I I hope mm-hmm. to get paid on the fifteenth. Uh, it's the money I have in my pocket right now. Yep. And then that, when you're there, wow, talk about peace, talk about freedom, talk about wiggle room, flexibility, freedom. That is what can come when you get out of piggy banking. And then when you're in that spot, when you're living off of the money you already have, when the paycheck comes in, you just don't touch it. You just let it sit there for the next month. Mm-hmm. So then when you're living this way, say in June, well then all the money that comes in for June, you just let it sit there. And then when it comes time to make your budget for July, you look at all the money that's come in and then you plan how you're going to spend it. Yep. We call this concept being a month ahead of your money. Mm-hmm. So it's it gives you that an entire month of runway before you're actually going to, to run out of cash instead of always waiting for that next payroll. Mm-hmm. I say a lot of folks, I mean, there's a lot of studies on uh, you know, what this percentage of people are paycheck to paycheck and all that. I would love to see something that said, well, how long have they been there? I think a lot right, of folks, right. especially when I was starting out, like I didn't know there was another way. I right. think that's just how money works. <laughs> right. And so it, you can get out and it, it is possible. And it is, there's a level of freedom you have yet to experience on the other side. So that tip number one is piggy banking. And we're talking about two concrete things you can do now to stop living paycheck to paycheck. When six out of 10 people are living paycheck to paycheck and four out of 10 people earning higher income are also in the same exact boat. doesn't matter how much you make. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of budgeting. So can you give a couple more examples of piggy banking? Yeah, piggy banking can be used, right? You have those regular uh, high uh, expenses, the the car insurance, things like that. Things that you, especially if you're paycheck to paycheck, that you happens can't once just a year. You're throw talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once okay. a year, every yep. six months, things like that. Yeah, and, and that, it'd be hard to absorb something like that in any given paycheck. Yeah, if you're not planning ahead and oh, I gotta pay the insurance bill, you have to figure out where that thousand bucks or more is coming mm-hmm. from. So, some other examples that we recommend people create a piggy bank for is uh, um, car maintenance. Mark car maintenance. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't get that out. Um, We oftentimes find people frustrated and upset, you know, when they have to go to the mechanic for new tires or an oil change, frustrated by these expenses because they seem to pop up out of nowhere. But these are all planned expenses that you're going to be able to, you have to anticipate they're going to happen to your vehicle. But if you build in that piggy bank, well, then the money's always there waiting for you when that next set of tires or the oil change or the, um, water pump needs to to be changed, etc. They're not going to be surprise bills. Another one would be, you know, that family vacation you know you want to take. You're going to go ahead and protect that as a priority by piggy banking for it every month. Or maybe it's Catholic school tuition. You know, these are expenses that if you don't build in savings throughout the year for them, they're just going to wreck you <laughs> when they do come up and you're going to be scrambling thinking, oh my, where's where's the high enough limit credit card that I can slap this on? And then you're digging yourself into an even bigger hole. But right. if you use that piggy banking concept, it helps. So really quick, when you gave the example of budgeting in maintenance, because not everyone, no one really gets their maintenance done once a month. It's usually at least every few months. How much do you usually recommend setting aside for, let's say, one car or two cars to have piggy banked each month so that you're ready for the maintenance from the tires to anything that might come up? Yeah, you'll want to first take a kind of take stock of your car. How old is it? What kind of state are the tires in? You can know that you're going to need tires in the next, say, six months. 
And then if you if you see that in your tires, right? You check how deep the treads are, all that, then you can know, okay, I need to beef this up a little bit, you know. I'd say uh, tires are anywhere between probably at the very lowest end, if you found a deal, 100 to maybe 150 or two per wheel. Uh, so then maybe you're starting starting to sack out, you know, 100 bucks, 120 bucks for those wheels or those those tires so that when the time comes and they are pretty bare, you can get them changed. No problem, no emergency where this is coming from. You can do it uh, nice and easy. Okay, and then that second tip was the second tip for getting out of that rut of living paycheck to paycheck. Was that where you're talking about getting a month ahead with your budget? Yes. Exactly, yes. yes. The the piggy banking helps, uh, in general, helps smooth out expenses, makes it easier to uh, take these on without having to just do it all at once. Now, kind of if you look, zoom out a little bit, the funding your budget for the month is a really big expense. And so if you can save up the money to be able to do that all at once, right, have that money on the first of the month, then every time it comes through, right, because now you're no longer paycheck to paycheck. You don't have to schedule and figure out, okay, the paycheck came on this day, the bills due on that day, I need to save right. this much from this one to pay that one. Mm -hmm. It's just so much easier. Mm -hmm. You yep. can pay what you want to pay when you mm -hmm. pay it. It just makes everything easier, more simplified, and then you can spend more time and effort on the things that matter more to you. Right. Something we've been trying to do is to always be a month ahead on paying our mortgage. So we, you know, set it up two weeks to a month ahead. It's already paid. That way we have that time to really focus because that's our biggest expense right now. And so mm -hmm. having that mindset has been very helpful and it gives some peace since that's, you know, the big thing that for us we need to make sure is taken care of. Okay. I love these tips. Now, someone, I know I'm sitting here asking the same question. You're saying get a month ahead on your finances. What mm -hmm. are some concrete things you say you say to cut out in order to get a month ahead? For because for a lot of people who are living paycheck to paycheck, that's really difficult and might sound impossible. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's not uncommon for us to run into families now who feel like they really only have a hundred dollars a month that's you know not spoken for and claimed already, and that can be a really stressful spot. That's going to take obviously what seems like forever to save an entire month of money if you really only had $100 to set aside. And so we really encourage people that want to make that leap. Maybe for 90 days, you're just going to get really focused, dig into your bank account, dig into your budget and see what is really there necessary and serving you and exactly what God's calling you to right now. And what's just not needed right now? What could be paused? What could be put off? What could be minimized? What could be canceled for right now? Again, we're just trying to shore things up. We're not saying no forever. But once you kind of make that turn, you know, after 60, 90 days and you do have that savings ready to go, maybe there's a combination effort of you're also working a side hustle or um, you negotiated a raise at work, something, or you sold some stuff that you've been meaning to and you just hadn't gotten around to. So that combined one-two punch of kind of minimizing expenses going out and maybe bringing in a little bit more income in that time window is going to help you make that leap. And then from there, you can kind of, you know, let the purse strings out a bit, if you will, and go back to a more regular budget. But the goal would be to just get this done quickly because it's just going to bring you so much more psychological, emotional peace around your money that it's worth just kind of digging in for a short window of time to get it done. 
Excellent. So those are the two tips. If you are one of those people, six out of 10 people are in the same boat, living paycheck to paycheck, those are your tips for how to stop. Number one, piggy banking, saving the, that extra money for those big expenses that occur on occasion, such as the tires, such as you know, it's extra set of insurance, whatever that might be. And number two, getting ahead, a month ahead of your finances. I love what you guys are doing. A Catholic perspective on finances. Walletwin.com is your website. And briefly, I just want to mention, you guys have a summit coming up specifically on the topic of money, correct? That's right. The Catholic Money Summit is coming up in June. Uh, Sign-ups just started today. There's some uh, little bonuses if you get signed up early. We're doing it free. We're gathering dozens of Catholic leaders and financial experts to talk about and explore the intersection of the Catholic faith and our finances. The church has a lot to say about it, mm-hmm. but a lot of us have never heard it before. And so there, there are ways to incorporate our faith and to illuminate the way we handle our finances. And so head on over. You can go to catholicmoneysummit.com right now to learn more about it and sign up. That's CatholicMoneySummit.com, and that's John and Amanda Texera from WalletWin.com, your Catholic money mentors. Thank you so much for joining us today on Trending. We've tagged them on social media as well if you need additional tips for how to get your budget under control and to stop being those 6 out of 10 people who are living paycheck to paycheck. Who needs that stress? God didn't intend us to live that way. Let's make the change, even if it's a sacrifice. Are you tired of educational options that are one size fits all? Our sponsor, Colby Academy, offers the flexibility of both accredited online and traditional school at home options to fit the needs of your child. Visit relevantradio.com slash Colby. Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. This week, there was a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee titled The Assault on Reproductive Rights in a Post-Dob America. It's really interesting listening to bits of the Senate Judiciary Committee because they had a pro-life panel along with a handful of pro-abortion testimonies there. And there is a lot to say about what happened. I want to start off with probably one of the more controversial things you hear often in the media today that is a lie. It is an outright fallacy. And if you believe it, if the medical profession is believing it, uh, that's really sad. I'm going to talk about how that's actually delivering terrible health care to women. But one of the women testifying was Amanda Zorowski, who experienced a miscarriage, and she claims that she was refused an, quote, emergency abortion for her miscarriage. First of all, line in the sand, let's be clear. Any and every woman who has lost a child via miscarriage has not had or committed an abortion. And any medical intervention needed to remove a dead baby from her womb is not an abortion. We have to be really clear about that because 
the pro-abortion movement is trying to claim that that's an abortion. Now, this woman, Amanda Zorowski, actually accused Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton of intentionally putting her life at risk for saying he would not enforce that he would enforce the Texas state abortion law that basically outlaws abortion in the state of Texas. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, He's upholding a law to protect women and babies. It's in her interest that this is protected because abortion is bad for women. And what she needed was a medical intervention that was not an abortion. She needed to go to a medical hospital that is not an abortion clinic that performs subpar medical care. Because, in fact, in the state of Texas, well over about 10 years ago, I think it was 2015-ish, we saw a Supreme Court case where all the abortion clinics in the state of Texas were going to close. Why? Because they weren't meeting basic medical standards there in that state. They weren't even meeting basic ambulatory regulations that in the event of an emergency, a ambulance could fit a gurney through the halls or be prepared to transfer directly to a hospital if something happened at the abortion clinic. And it's not even a clinic. We shouldn't even call it a clinic. The place where abortions are performed because it's not meeting medical standards. So why would we consider it a part of medicine? It's not. Never has been. In a clinic, it's not a clinic. It doesn't help people. And so we've got to be clear there because what this woman is saying in wanting abortion access is she's actually okay with subpar care. She did not need an abortion because she, as long as her baby was dead, she unfortunately and very tragically lost a baby via miscarriage and again to be clear no woman who's had a miscarriage has ever had committed or participated in an abortion to kill that baby otherwise that would be an abortion this woman let's be really clear amanda zarowski should have received this basic medical care that was not an abortion to help remove the baby that had deceased within her we need to stop playing politics on women's bodies on the backs of women. It's a lie. Every doctor knows that they can treat a woman who has had a miscarriage. If you're fearful as a physician and you need some accountability given pro-life laws outlawing abortion, then bring another person, bring a nurse, bring your supervisor, bring another doctor into the room to verify that the baby has indeed deceased. You can do that via ultrasound technology, and then you can move forward with extracting the baby from the mother's womb because that baby has deceased. You're not going in and intentionally killing a baby. It's called professionalism, not politics and medicine. If you need accountability, if you need people who can testify to the fact that you are treating a woman who has lost a child, do so. And I think this is the reality of it. If someone really believes, if a medical professional really believes that what they're performing is an abortion when a woman has a miscarriage, when, well, basically they have believed the lie then or have exclusively listened to Planned Parenthood and the greater abortion movement. That's sick if they're advising their clients in this direction, saying that that's an abortion and they're not giving them medical care. They need to be held medically accountable to treat women and honor life. Honoring, remember, even the life of the deceased child by, if necessary, removing the dead baby. And we are called as Catholics to give that baby a proper burial. One of the senators from Texas actually commented that this woman had actually, by waiting for treatment, 
she actually has a very good medical malpractice lawsuit on her hands because whoever that physician was who supposedly denied her care was not meeting basic medical care for women and again could be held culpable for a malpractice lawsuit. But let's go further into the hearing. So what we're talking about is that on Wednesday of this week, there was a Senate Judiciary Committee specifically on the topic. It was titled The Assault on Reproductive Rights in a Post-Dobbs America. And what's interesting is that there were a number of pro-abortion testimonies and there was a whole panel of pro-life witnesses, including physicians at OBGYNs. And it was very interesting to hear some of the testimonies from the pro-life panelists. Starting with, I'd like to talk about Dr. Monique Wobbenhurst. She gave an incredible testimony about how there's a difference between life-saving care and abortion. Listen to this. Wobbenhurst, uh, could you explain how women can still receive compassionate and necessary medical treatment from pregnancy complications without their provider performing in an abortion? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for the question. I think that, um, as I said earlier in my testimony, um, when women experience complications, and in my career I have had literally hundreds of women, both here and in other countries, have complications requiring delivery. Um, when you are performing a procedure to save the life of the mother, it is not morally considered uh, an abortion, and therefore it is ethically permissible. Um, compassionate care means that you consider the circumstances carefully, you act in the best interest of both patients. If the death of the unborn child is a result of your intervention, um, that is a, a tragic outcome. But nonetheless, our priority is to uh, save the life of the mother um, and preserve her functioning, and that can be accomplished without performing an abortion. Let's be really clear here. This is uh, Dr. Monique Wobbenhurst, and she's making it clear that she's worked with tons, hundreds of women who have had complications in pregnancy. And she's saying that there is never the need for an abortion to save the life of the mother. What she's emphasizing is that even when a life-threatening intervention is needed for an intervention for the mom that could potentially be life-threatening for the baby, that's different. It's a secondary effect, not an intentional effort to kill a baby. Why would we go in and intentionally kill the baby when there is a fighting chance that those children in the womb can survive intervention that a woman might need medically. And also there's a heroic choice of women, many of women, who have chosen to forego having an abortion, even forego treatment, and heroically continue to work through a pregnancy. Not that a woman is required to do that. I worked with a woman last year who was Catholic, pro-life, but found herself having a really, really difficult case of cancer. And... She wanted to know if she could have an abortion, given those circumstances. And I said, I'm sorry, you can't. If if necessary, you could potentially deliver the baby early if necessary. And she ended up having an early delivery of the baby. The baby needed additional medical care, but was fine. But then that allowed her to receive the medical care that she needed. Very different from an abortion. And I think that's important, especially today, celebrating the feast day of St. Gianna. St. Gianna is known she lived really very recently, over the last hundred years, in Italy, and her story is phenomenal. She forewent a tr medical treatment that would have been life-threatening to her child. She refused to have an abortion and gave birth to a beautiful child. Now, she did, after complications from her pregnancy and medical care after the fact, did end up dying. 
but she heroically chose not to have an abortion. And her daughter is living, breathing, walking, incredible human being. I've met her. I'm so proud to see these stories where people say, no, I'm not going to go in and intentionally kill my child. And even I'm willing to sacrifice my life if necessary. Is that frightening? The idea that your child might live without a parent if something goes wrong? Yes. But that doesn't give us license to kill another human being. And that's very important. But again, coming back to the fact that Dr. Wobbenhurst here specifically made clear she's treated hundreds of women who have had high risk and complications within their pregnancy. And she never had to use an abortion to treat that woman, to give that woman medical care. And that's very important. Yeah. Now, it's important also to recognize that the United States has no federal mandate or requirement that data is reported with regard to abortion. Now, some states volunteer data with regard to abortions that are being performed, but no states are required to fulfill any obligation with regard to complications or track complications or even death after an abortion. Now, Dr. Ingrid Scope actually commented on this, giving her testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee this week. Listen up. So in my 30 years um, practicing uh, caring for women, I've cared for many women who have been harmed by abortion. I've cared for a woman who died of a second trimester um, abortion from sepsis. I have, um, in my practice, another young girl died from sepsis after a first trimester surgical abortion in which her uterus had been perforated. Um, I've cared for many, many women who have explained to me that their anxiety and depression um, is due to their unresolved guilt over an abortion. I trust those women to tell me what the cause of their concerns are. I've seen women who self-harm. Um, I've seen women who turn to substance and alcohol use and abuse um, due to this um, guilt that they have. Um, Regarding chemical abortion, um, and I would like to state that so that everyone is aware, the United States does not have any federal mandates to report any data about abortion. We do not know how many abortions occur. We do not know the complications. And we certainly don't know the deaths um, because, as I reported, it's well known that mental health deaths can follow abortion, and our CDC does not try to make that linkage at all. Um, Countries that have made this linkage have documented far higher um, mental health deaths in the year following abortion compared to childbirth, including six times as many suicides. I had a family member approach me a couple of years ago. She grabbed my arms and begged me over and over again, why doesn't anyone talk about the fact that women who have abortions are suicidal? Why doesn't anyone say it? This was coming from a woman who herself had had an abortion at one point. And she was beside herself, not understanding why this is something that's not talked about. And I appreciate Dr. Ingrid Scope testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee because she's calling out the fact that the United States has no report of any data with regard to the aftermath of abortion. We don't even know the number of abortions that have been performed. Most states aren't required to report, especially those states with the highest abortion numbers, such as my state of California. We have no clue about abortion complications reported or deaths. And she herself is speaking firsthand, Ingrid Scope, testifying that she knows women who have died from complications in abortion, sepsis, 
perforated uteruses, even women who have been suicidal. And I think that that is very, very important that to this day, the medical community, the psychological community, the CDC, no one is reporting the number of deaths because of abortion, whether due to medical complication or due to mental health crises after the fact. And I think that's a really important thing to recognize and discuss. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. We're talking about the Senate Judiciary Committee this week, talking about abortion and women's health of late since the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the state-to-state limitations on abortion and pro-life laws that have been passed. I want to now turn to Dr. Wobbenhurst, also testified, talking about the maternal mortality rate. You hear a lot about this, and for really since the inception of abortion here in the United States, the argument to legalize abortion was specifically because people said women are dying in childbirth, we need legal abortion. Here's the fact of the matter. Dr. Wobbenhurst is going to present this right now. Listen. The solution to maternal mortality, and I've been working in this area globally and in the United States for many years, is to improve health care, health education, and to increase support to pregnant women. Abortion does nothing to address any of those issues. The main causes of maternal mortality have been for years, and in the most recent CDC data from 2021, are deaths from cardiovascular causes, infection, um, embolus, and so on and so forth. Abortion will not reduce those deaths. There is no argument and no paper anywhere that shows that abortion reduces maternal mortality. There are studies that purport to do so, but when you look at the essence of the studies, what they're saying is that, well, if you reduce the number of women at risk by performing abortions in them, that somehow reduces the number of mortalities. In point of fact, we cannot predict exactly who will have a poor outcome. We cannot predict who will have an adverse maternity outcome. And so that asks the question, how many, what percent of high-risk pregnancies should we abort? 20%, 30%, 40%? This is unbelievable. Did you hear what Dr. Wobbenhurst just said to the Senate Judiciary Committee? She just blew it out of the water. What did she say? That there is no paper anywhere, not just in the United States, but worldwide, claiming that legal abortion reduces the maternal mortality rate. That Yet that was what the argument was that convinced even Catholics to support the legalization of abortion. What helps prevent women from becoming infected, from dying after having or during their pregnancy, during their birth, after birth? Well, treating heart conditions, making sure there are sanitary circumstances, the invention of penicillin. Can we just recognize the fact that the invention of penicillin has been life-changing for decreasing maternal mortality rates. And that's the fact of the matter. No study that even tries, the handful that try to claim that abortion reduces maternal mortality, if you actually read the data, it's not true. And some people will try to say, well, it is true because we have fewer women dying today. Well, yeah, it's because we have penicillin. It's because we can treat infections. It's because we have better health care, treating heart issues. And also, it's the fact that fewer women are having children. So when you have fewer women giving birth, fewer women are dying as, if, as well. And this all comes back to the truth of the conversation rather than the falsified information that Planned Parenthood and the pro-abortion movement has been pushing for years. So let's review for a minute because I think this is really important that we talk about it. These are some of the lies dispelled during the hearing by expert medical professionals that we just walked through. Four key lies that need to be addressed. Here's the bottom line. Don't play 
politics on the bodies of women, on the backs of women, the uteruses of women, the fertility of women, on the lives of their babies. Because you have a mother, and even after the baby has died through abortion, you still have a woman who is a mother. And the medical fallout, along with the mental health fallout, is so significant that we are doing no justice toward women. We are hurting women and, again, playing politics on their bodies. And that's why some people who are claiming that they have not received some care for basic medical treatments having to do with miscarriage, not with the intentional killing of a baby, that's wrong if any medical professional is doing so. And that is room for medical malpractice and a lawsuit. And I'm really glad that that was brought up in the Senate Judiciary hearing. So here are the four key takeaways from the hearing this week. With regard to the fact that we need to stop playing politics on the bodies of women and the lives of babies. Number one, we need to treat women with basic health care for a miscarriage. That is not an abortion and any medical professional that thinks so is not being professional. And if they think they might be at risk, they need to call in accountability to prove the fact that that baby was deceased before removing the baby from the womb. And no woman should be told that she's having an abortion when she's already faced a tragic loss of her child. Any woman who's not received basic medical care for a miscarriage is being lied to and manipulated by the medical practitioner. Number two, abortion is never medically necessary to save the life of the mother. I'm actually going to link on social media now, as well as in the episode notes for today's show, where I talk to Dr. John Bochansky. Um, it's a really important conversation that I had with him talking about how he has worked with at-risk, high-risk pregnancies and it's never necessary to perform an abortion. We're going to explain why in longer form, but you also heard the expert testimony earlier as well here on trending that was given before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Number three, the United States has no federal mandate to report any data about abortion. Dr. Ingrid Scope specifically testified because of that, we don't know the number of deaths that have come from abortion as a result of abortion, both because of medical fallout, but because of the mental health crisis. These are things you need to be able to communicate to other people. Number four, abortion does not reduce the maternal mortality rate. There's no medical scientific data out there to support this. It's an absolute lie when people try to claim it, and it's been a lie since the legalization of abortion in the United States, and it has swayed Catholics for years. I have talked to many young people who are pro-life, but said, well, what about the life of the mother? What about maternal mortality rate? When they hear the data, their jaws drop. They had no idea that those pro-abortion claims are not factual and are not supported in any way. And this is why we need to have these conversations. This Senate Judiciary hearing was very, very well stacked with pro-life panelists. So if you miss this conversation, go back and listen to this episode of Trending, relevantradio.com forward slash trending, or wherever you catch your podcast, we are there. You need to share this episode and be able to articulate those four key ideas having to do with there's no decrease in maternal mortality rate, that because we're not required to list statistically the fallout of abortion medically and psychologically, we don't know how many people are dying as a result of abortion. Abortion is also never medically necessary to save the life of the mother. And finally, it's important that any woman who's experienced a miscarriage, a loss of a child, is not having an abortion. 
And that's very fundamental. And women need to stop being told that that's the case. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Happy to take your questions here on the show. Numbers 1-888-914-9149. Interesting question came in from a woman who had an abortion in tubal ligation. And she's looking to make next steps in her life after this pass. We'll be right back here on Trending. The Catholic Order of Foresters, the sponsor of our studio line, is hiring today. Several positions are available throughout the U.S. Visit RelevantRadio.com slash Foresters to learn more about how you can find your vocation with COF. An Illinois Life Insurance Society, not licensed in all states. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back. I wanted to take this question. I received an email from a woman who went through with having an abortion and tubal ligation a handful of years ago, and she's sharing her experience and asking for some guidance. Let me share with you a little bit of her story, and I'll talk about a Catholic take on this. In 2016, she said, I had a tubal ligation. I was in a very unhealthy relationship, not married, but we had two children. She said it was really bad, and she became pregnant with a third child, and she chose to have an abortion. She said she then felt bad after having had the abortion and didn't feel worthy of another child, so she had her tubes tied. She went through with tubal ligation. She said, now I'm in a better place with both of my children, but live in regret for what I did, both regarding the abortion and tubal ligation. So I'm no longer with the father of the two children, but I'm now, she's now in a healthy place. She's dating someone who she's considering married, marrying. But she said, I get really bummed out that I cannot have any more children. She said, he has accepted me as you can say, but if we take it to our relationship, to a sacramental marriage, I would love to have children. So she's discerning sacramental marriage. She's looking at hope in the next steps with this man, a marriage within the church. She said, I was thinking of getting my tubes untied, but I don't know how to, how effective that will be. And she said, I want to share my story to see what kind of feedback you can give me or advice. Well, first of all, know that if you're listening and you have experienced an abortion, I want to throw this resource out to anyone who has had an abortion. It's supportafterabortion.com. That's supportafterabortion.com. I'll post a link on my social media. Just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. And the link will also be in the episode notes for today's podcast. By the way, you can subscribe relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you listen, especially Relevant Radio app. It's easy to listen and share right from our own app. And the show's available a little after the show. So support after abortion is really important that we have that resource if you've been through an abortion. So number one, my first recommendation is if you haven't already gone to confession for having your tubes tied or for the abortion, I really recommend you get there immediately and work on that level of healing. Also, again, I mentioned supportafterabortion.com for healing from that abortion. That way you're not taking uh, the wounds as significantly as they are uh, into a future marriage. Now let's talk about what to do next. So you're considering marriage, you're considering a reversal of having your tubes untied and what steps. Well, I think that it's important to start out with if you're discerning marriage with this man, recognizing the current state of having had your tubes tied, that no matter what, you need to be open to the fact that you may not be able to have children with him. 
He needs to be at peace with that, which you've already commented that he's accepted you just the way you are. Good man. It's very important. But you yourself need to be at peace with the fact that children may not come from this marital union. Now, that's okay as long as you're open to life. And that's very important. Now, let's talk about being open to life. Being open to life means that we are open to the children that may come as a result. Now, there's a lot of conversation that could be had about whether or not you go through with having your tubes untied. I, as long as it was medically made sense for you, I would recommend moving forward first and foremost because it's healing a wound that's an injustice that's been done to your body, to your mind, to your soul. And so to the best of your ability, even dependent upon how effective it may may or may not be, if you prayerfully discern and believe that that is something you'd like to do, move forward with it. I would recommend it given that uh, this is something that you really feel called to and you're trying to right a wrong. Does that mean that children will necessarily come? That doesn't necessarily mean so, which is why you need to detach from the potential of having children and abandon that to God. I'm not saying that you hope not to have children or that you overemphasize that you will have children, but that you, if you enter into this marriage, the emphasis is not placed on I have to have children to right a wrong, or I'm only marrying because I think I might be able to have children. That's very fundamental because it's also as potentially your future husband is talking about accepting your body as is after having the wounds of gone through, having gone through that tubal ligation, you too have to make peace with your body in the place that it is in now as well. Uh, and discern again whether or not you move forward with that tubal ligation, which I think that as a woman, uh, woman, especially if you're in your childbearing years, having that culpability and responsibility, I would feel very deeply called to to undo, right, that wrong, that injustice that has been done to the body out of guilt and out of the voice of the world. And all of this being said, I think that abandoning your heart's desire, your fertility, your current children, your desire to marry, this man that you're discerning marriage with, abandon all of it to the Lord. Trust in his plan. And remember that the greatest miracles of sacred scripture, the greatest stories in salvation history do indeed actually include miraculous births, miraculous conceptions, women who are believed to be otherwise infertile, too old, it's been too long that they've waited, and yet they've had children. So I talk of this in an important perspective of hope. Hope in the fact that God can do miracles in the midst of seemingly impossible circumstances. Should we hold on to that perspective as saying, this is the only reason I'll marry? No. Hope is an act of humility and abandonment before God and trusting in God. And I think that's very important. I once read a book by Joseph Paper, and he talked about how hope is the balance between magnanimity and humility. This effort in a certain respect on our part, uh, this responsibility, but at the same time, this humility, this total trust and abandonment to God and God's will. I remember hope is one of the three theological virtues. It's on a natural level, we can work on being hopeful, but it's God who infuses that virtue, that theological faith-centered virtue of hope in our lives. Pray to him for this virtue. This is why we pray for it in the very beginning of the rosary, having hope in God above all else. 
And so as you're discerning next steps with this man, congratulations that you found someone that you, you would consider marriage with. Consider someone to be a father to your current children. I think that that's wonderful, but those are some things I think in discerning that. And if you have any further questions, I'm happy to take them here on Trend. You can reach out via email. By the way, if you have a question, just head over to relevantradio.com forward slash trending to send me an email. It's also trending at relevantradio.com. I love taking your questions and hearing from you. And I just keep thinking on this note, I know a couple who they actually went through with having, they weren't Catholic, but it's a pretty incredible story. They'd had a few children, they'd fostered, and the husband went through with a vasectomy. And the wife was already in uh, the early stages of menopause, progressing quite rapidly. And she was also, I believe, in her mid-50s. She conceived a baby. Did you hear me? She was already working through menopause. She was in her 50s and her husband had had a vasectomy and she conceived a baby. That baby was an absolute miracle baby. I mean, it seemed like everything in the world was working against the conception of that child, but that baby was conceived. They did not have an abortion. They were shocked. They had the baby, precious child, now well into her later teen years. And as I was thinking about this question earlier, I kept thinking about how we can put so many roadblocks in our lives trying to ward off having children, trying to fight the will of God, to try and fight the natural order of the human body and the blueprint God has created for our lives. And often, through the grace of God, things still function as they do when we're faithful to him. I'm not saying this is a promise if you're struggling with infertility or later in life you want children, but what I'm saying is we need to trust in God and his intervention. And I think that's so fundamental, especially with regard to our fertility. It can be such a difficult topic. I know so many couples who they were never able to conceive uh, yet, or maybe they have one child and they're so desperately desiring another What I see is that when people abandon their fertility and trust the hope and desire for a child to God, there's peace. There's peace in the fact that that may not happen. And there's peace in knowing that the most miraculous and incredible stories of all of salvation history, going all the way back to Sarah and Abraham, moving all the way forward to the conception of our Lord Jesus Christ in the womb of Our Lady, God can and will work miracles in life, but it's his will be done. Not my will, not my spouse's will, not the will of the culture. I think that that conformity to Christ is the hardest part in our journey. We talked a lot today about abortion. If you or someone you know has had an abortion, I truly hope you will save this resource, share it, maybe even post on social media. Supportafterabortion.com. At supportafterabortion.com. We know, statistically speaking, that once a woman has one abortion, she'll often have another abortion after that. One of the best ways to help prevent more babies from being aborted, to prevent women from having future wounds with regard to abortion, is to help provide healing for that woman that will help decrease the suicide rate in our nation, that will help decrease the mental health crisis in our nation if we can help women who are suffering from abortion, to receive healthy, hope-filled healing. That's supportafterabortion.com. 
Again, supportafterabortion.com. Coming up next is a family rosary across America. Kale Clark from the Kale Clark Show and the Faith Explained will be hosting the family rosary across America today as Father Rocky has been in the Holy Land. So I hope you'll join Kale Clark coming up here in just a moment on Trending. And I'll see you Monday for our weekly happy hour.